This is Connected to Chicago, a look at the top stories of the week with the people making, covering, and talking about the news of the day. Now, Connected to Chicago. And welcome to Connected to Chicago. This week saw the heavy hammer of the federal government fall on one of the most powerful politicians in Illinois. A grand jury returned a 22-count indictment against former House Speaker Mike Madigan, who for more than 40 years went untouched and was thought by some to be untouchable. The indictment alleges Madigan participated in an array of bribery and extortion schemes from 2011 through 2019. Someone who butted heads over the years in state government with Mike Madigan, former Governor Rob Lagojevich, who joins us today. Thanks for taking the time to be on the program, Governor. I'm going to guess that your initial reaction to the news uh, that this indictment was brought against Madigan was not one of surprise, but one of, I told you so. Well, well yes, Nick, I would say... Uh, in all honesty, there's an element of that, of course, and there's also a, you know, the human side of it. And you know, I've been through what he's now going through, and it's a very bad place to find yourself. It's very hard for you. It's it's really hard for your children, your family. So I, you know, I, on the one hand, I feel bad for him personally, more so his family, his children. Um, on the other hand, um, I like the fact that you said I butted heads with him. I take great pride in the fact that I spent six years as governor, fighting him. And he was the chairman of my party, Democrat Party. He was the Democratic House Speaker. I was the Democratic elected governor, twice by the people. And I was fighting against a what I believe is a corrupt status quo establishment in Springfield that serves itself on the backs of the people. And Madigan is, has been for the longest time the emperor of a political empire that he created down there in Springfield where he got rich, his family got rich, and his friends got rich. And they did this through higher taxes on people, higher utility rates on people. In other words, they benefit and serve themselves, and the people paid for it. And so, you know, I fought them, and I have reason to believe and even evidence to suggest that Madigan colluded with the, the dishonest former U.S. attorney, Patrick Fitzgerald, to bring on what happened to me. Because I'll insist to the day I die, I never broke a law, crossed the line, or took a penny. When was the first inkling you had that things just kind of weren't up to snuff? whether it be Madigan or others in, in Springfield, was it later on as governor or was it early on in your political career that you kind of learned about these backdoor deals and the way things are really hammered out there in Springfield? Well, that's another thing, Madigan. He's the master of the backroom deal, and he operates in the shadows, and he, he's the quintessential backroom politician. And so when you're struggling with him, and, and that was how it was for the six years that I was governor, you know, he's a moving he's, – he's hard to pin down because – First of all, the public really doesn't know who he is. Political insiders know, but the general public, they don't know. They know the governor. And so when the governor's fighting, you know, you take political hits for that because the public is uncomfortable with the fact that there's fighting going on. But sometimes the people should realize that fighting is being done for good reasons. My priorities were about providing health care to all of our children and to the parents of those children, affordable health care without raising taxes on people. I was able to give free public transportation to the seniors. Our seniors entered the disabled again without, you know, raising the income tax, which is what Madigan was trying to make me do for six years, and I wouldn't do it. We did a lot of stuff uh, by moving the money around, and Madigan was the guardian of all of that money. I mean, there was more than enough money to serve the people because we're talking about a $60 billion state budget back then. It's probably a lot more now. Um, so do, do I know or was I aware of Madigan being a backroom wheeler dealer? Uh, early on in my term as governor, the answer was long before I was governor, I knew that. I knew that when I was a state lawmaker um, 
10 years before when I first was elected to the state house. Uh, and I was part of his caucus and he was my democratic leader. Um, now let me just draw a distinction between wheeling and dealing, because if you're, that's the nature of the business. You can't govern without mm-hmm. making political mm-hmm. deal. This is how it works. The first mayor daily who incidentally Madigan saw as sort of a, a model of how you should do politics. What he didn't do was the, the government side because the first mayor daily was a master politician, but he was also someone who believed in governing well and making the city of Chicago, quote unquote, the city that works. You're too young to remember this, but that was the state. That was the phrase back then. And he used to say the first mayor daily, good government is good politics and good politics is good government. I would say that when it comes to Madigan, he was great at the politics side, but he failed in the government side because he wasn't motivated about doing good government. He was motivated instead to use his success in politics to personally enrich himself, benefit himself, his family, and his friends, and to create a political empire where he controlled everything. And then when I became the governor, I had different ideas. And I felt that, yeah, you got to make political deals. And I made all kinds of deals with him during some of the periods where we got along or when the, we would have truces in our fighting. You know, there's practical elements of the business, so you got to, you know, make deals with the guy that you're fighting. But those deals were always motivated by doing good things for the public. That's how we got health care for kids. And uh, that's how we got preschool for three and four-year-olds. That's how I was able to achieve a lot of the stuff I did for everyday people without taxing them. So the wheeling and dealing is not wrong in and of itself. Abraham Lincoln was the quintessential wheeler-dealer, but he was motivated by a desire to serve the people. Madigan, unfortunately, was not that. In fact, Madigan harmed the people by promoting his political agenda and uh, making himself, his family, and his friends all rich and wealthy. Madigan and his minions all got rich down there. And there's a culture in Springfield that's so corrupt. And even and when I say corrupt, it's not necessarily that they're breaking laws, but they're actually making laws because they are our lawmakers. They make laws to benefit themselves personally and financially. They're all they've got pensions. They're double dippers. They have two or three. They have two jobs in, in government, on government payrolls. Um, State senators have wives who are contractors with the state. They're all concerned about their pensions and getting more pensions. And so Madigan played to that personal greed and was able to control a process down there in Springfield where everybody pretty much fed off that system with Madigan being the guy who controlled it all. He was sort of like the, he was sort of like the pilot of the ship, you know, uh, and he steered everything, and they all kind of came to him for stuff. And so over four decades of leadership, you got to remember, he's been there for more than 50 years, but he was this Democratic Speaker of the House for about 43 years, with, an ex- with the exception of two years in 1995, 1996. Madigan's been sort of the pilot, and everybody's come to him for their stuff. And uh, when I went down to Springfield and I was ch- challenging some of that stuff, including ethics reforms that would end legislators being lobbyists at the same time, which is mind-boggling to me, uh, one of Madigan's close allies – uh, former state Senate President John Cullerton was named the lobbyist of the year in 2014. Now, Nick, he was named that while he at the same time was the president of the Illinois State Senate. Right. Now, how is that ethical or even legal? Yeah, and that was one of the things that Madigan really, that you two kind of did butt heads over. You wanted these ethics reforms, and I think the public stood with you on this and kind of realized, yeah, what's going on down there? But Madigan really tried, uh, you know, to, to block those things, to continue on kind of business as usual in Springfield. Let me let me ask you this. Um, is this indictment, the, the fact that, that Mike Madigan now 
faces the possibility of punishment, um, you know, of course, innocent until proven guilty. But is mm-hmm. this going to kind of wake people up in Illinois? And is this going to wake up those politicians in Springfield? That's a great question. Uh, and, and I think there's a lot of unfinished business. And here again, um, you know, I was a Democrat and still am a Democrat, although, you know, my politics is is. Um, how would I say this is sort of making adjustments along the way. I think I'm, I'm evolving I'm a lot of Americans. Yeah, I think that's yeah. right. But no, I mean, it's a real good question. I think I don't know the answer to that. I don't know. I do think it's going to it has to be. I I think it can't be as bad as it was because you had one guy, Madigan, controlling everything. This guy was this guy was little Caesar down there. He was like a mob boss controlling everything. He was Don Corleone. Mm -hmm. And now that he's Mm -hmm. gone, there's uh, more of the lawmakers and leaders have freedom to maneuver and do other things. So he, there isn't one center that has total control like he did. So I think that's going to be a good thing. But there's more to be done here. With all due respect to our current governor, Pritzker, it, let's not lose sight of the fact that when Pritzker was elected, he gave Mike Madigan more than $7 million. Our governor gave Mike Madigan $7 million of his own money to for whatever their arrangement was in political campaign funds, which is not in itself illegal. That's legal. The question is, Mm -hmm. why was he doing that? And why was Madigan demanding that Pritzker give him that money? I know Madigan tried to do that when I was governor. I wouldn't do it. But J.B. Pritzker inherited all that Hyatt Hotel wealth and uh, was basically throwing his money around. I think he spent something like $170 million of that money to make himself governor. And among the $170 million, he gave the ultimate political boss, Madigan, Democratic Party chairman, $7 million of it. And the the ComEd stuff that Madigan's been indicted for, Pritzker does not have clean hands. Pritzker appointed the mem- the people Madigan wanted on the Illinois Commerce Commission to actually make the decision on raising rates on consumers. So our governor has things to answer for as well. As this unfolds, we may see more and more of that. I find it ironic. You know, you know his issue with the toilets. Apparently, toilet gate they're calling it on his right. Gulf Coast property where. They uh, did some renovation, and they broke up the toilets in their bathroom so he could avoid paying something like $200,000 in property taxes. You remember this, Nick? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, Governor Pritzker? I mean, the irony is Governor Pritzker is going to great lengths destroying toilets in a in the high-rent district in Chicago <laughs> so he can save 200000 in property taxes. At the same time, he's giving Mike Madigan $7 million. So I think somebody needs to be looking at some of that stuff, too. So let me let me ask you this: um, Is is it a game to Madigan? Was it a game to Madis, uh, to Madigan? Was there some gamemanship to this, or was it simply he knew that he had the power to make things happen the way he wanted it to happen in Springfield? It's the latter. It was no game to him. This guy is ruthless, okay. relentless, and remorseless. And I want to say again, I don't wish this on even my worst political enemy, and Madigan was my worst political enemy. But this man had he, – he, he was all about his turf, controlling his turf, maintaining everything he had, and expanding it. And he had four decades to do it. And when you tried to fight him and take him on like I did, he was relentless in trying to destroy you. I have real strong belief and evidence to suggest that he was colluding – with Fitzgerald, the dishonest U.S. attorney who hijacked the governor twice elected by the people 
for non-crimes. The so-called sale of the Senate seat was a big lie from the beginning. The appellate court reversed that back in July of 2015. It was a lie from the beginning. And they right. rushed to throw me out of office when they had the opportunity. But that was not the first time Madigan tried to impeach me. When I gave every senior citizen free public transportation and the disabled free public transportation, and I did it in a way around the legislature, a creative way, because I, I had to find creative ways around Madigan to get things done for people. In February of 2008, which was about 10 months before calamity came into my life, Madigan and the House Democrats, my party, were circulating a, a, a petition to impeach me because they were saying I exceeded my authority to help little old ladies take a free bus ride. Right. And the Democrat Party is supposed to be the party of the little guy. I mean, you, you, well, you follow me? Go ahead. Yeah. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about also yeah. is, you know, I think it's fair to say there's rotten apples in both barrels in Springfield right. when it comes to both parties. Yeah. But it seems that the Democratic Party has changed. When I followed your administration, you talked with passion about your, your, your immigrant parents, uh, hardworking, uh, blue-collar jobs, able to raise uh, you and your brother, and jobs that the Democrat Party used to stand up for, the blue-collar men and women. Do you think that's changed because more and more, I think we see Democrats and maybe some Republicans out of touch with reality and out of touch with the working class. And the more you see someone like Nancy Pelosi jet setting around in her private jet, yet she's talking about, you know, climate change and, uh, you know, five dollar a gallon gas is good for us. I, I it makes me wonder how out of touch with reality and with actual hardworking Americans some of them are. You hit it on the head, Nick. The, the Democratic Party was what you described, frankly, how I saw it. And, yes, I, I would think about my late parents all the time when I was governor. I suddenly had all this power. And, yeah, Madigan was the big dog down there for the longest time, you know, in his lair in the back room, wheeling and dealing and doing the stuff he does. But I was still the governor and elected by the people, and I had a lot of power, too, through my the Constitution that gives the governor executive authority, where I could do a lot of stuff without the legislature. That's why Madigan really wanted to get rid of me. Uh, and I was doing it, and I was doing it contemptuously about him because I felt like he was selling out the people we promised to represent and fight for. And I would have conversations with him sometimes. We weren't always fighting, and even when we were fighting, we would talk once in a while. There were times where he wasn't even talking to me. But I remember vividly actually me, the governor, going to his office just saying, look, we've, got, we've done so much for health care for families in Illinois, affordable health care. Not all free. People have to pay premiums that are affordable, though. And there's still about a million working people that don't have access to it. Here's a way that we can give them access to affordable health care, too, where they have stake in the game and they have to contribute some of their premiums. So the premiums are far more affordable than what the private insurance companies were offering. And I, and I said, what is it that you want? Because I'll make whatever deal you want just about, but I won't raise taxes on the people. I'm not going to help them on the one hand, give them access right. to health care, and then take the money out of their other pocket. I've done nothing for them then. Or I've done less for them. Let's put it that way. And, you know, I went down a list of what, what he wanted. Give me job requests. And what do you want for your daughter, Lisa Madigan, who was another part of that Madigan clan that controlled things in Springfield? Um, and I remember telling him, look, we come from not dissimilar backgrounds. Like he was a little bit more, you know, mine was more humble probably. But Madigan's dad was a, a working guy. He was a, had a big job with the city of Chicago. He was an active precinct captain for the first mayor daily. So Madigan kind of grew up in a political environment and sort of in the higher end of politics in Chicago in his generation. So he was above me in that respect. 
but we were st- but his dad was still a working person, and the neighbor he grew up in was working class south side of Chicago. We have a, a, an unusual opportunity. We have a Democrat governor who wants to do it. You're a Democrat and you're a speaker. We've got a Democrat state Senate president who wants to do it. Why can't we just do this and help these people? And he just stared at me like I, like he was – like I was coming from outer space or something. You know, he'd accuse me of giving fake speeches, but there was nobody there except him, you know? And, of course, he didn't do it. Um, and so the answer to your question, it's a long answer. I gave you that illustration because Nancy Pelosi, who I knew when I was in Congress, supported her to become the Democratic leader. They do – not only do they lose touch with how they started out and where they came from, and I don't her background, she was a lot more elitist, but they become part of – the ruling class in America, and they become so far removed from everyday people. They don't even think like everyday people, and frankly, to, elect to, to some more than others, have contempt for the American people. And when I compare the two of them, Pelosi and Madigan, your comparison is comparable, but I'd say Madigan is far more contemptuous of everyday people than she is. I think she has some desire to try to be helpful to to real people. But Madigan, it's all business with him. It's all political maneuvers. The, the everyday people in Illinois are pawns in the political game that he's playing. But he's not playing a game for the sport. He's playing the game for the power, the control, and money, and make a lot of money and get rich for himself, his family, and his friends, which is undeniable. It happened. That's why he's caught up in what he's caught up in. This is the culmination of a political enterprise that he's been creating for decades. And uh, now perhaps we'll see whether or not uh, the, the, the allegations can be proven and whether or not he's crossed lines. Just got a minute or so left. You still have people out there that support you. They loved you when you were governor. Uh, a lot of people on your side, they, they don't see it the way the federal government saw it. Um, how are you doing? How is everything with Rod Blagojevich uh, back home uh, with the family, with your loved ones? Um, anything new for you out there? Well, thanks for asking, Nick. By the way, we're doing great, and we're blessed and fortunate. You know, in uh, Chapter 50 of Genesis and Scripture, it's written, what they meant for evil, God meant for good. That's the story of Joseph. This was a guy who was sent to prison for something he didn't do, um, but he was blessed because God found a way to give him the ability to interpret dreams, came to the attention of the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh put him in the top spot. He did a great job there, and suddenly he had power. Long story short, his brothers who had sold him out and sold him into slavery were afraid he was going to wreak vengeance on him. But he said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. That's how I see my my circumstances. It was mm. my family and I had gone through a lot of difficult times, as you would imagine. It was a long, long, hard journey. I spent 2,896 days, nearly eight years in prison for what I insist were not crimes. I would never give in. I fought back every step of the way because I felt an obligation for many reasons, not the least of which was – I was twice elected governor by the people of Illinois, and these dishonest prosecutors were hijacking a governor. Nobody elected those people. They didn't even allege that I took any money. It was all politics, political conversations started by then-President-elect Obama. Now, he didn't do anything wrong. It was horse trading. In any event, uh, we come out of all of that. I've learned a lot, and uh, I appreciate so much more about things in life than I ever did before when I was so busy in the race of life. And um uh, I do believe what they meant for evil, God meant for good. And among the good that I hope to do is a documentary film on crime, which we're beginning in pre-production in two weeks. Um, So I'm going to actually try to film a documentary about crime in Chicago 
And I'm uh, really excited about this because I think if we do this in, a, in an honest way, in the right way, I think it could be very helpful in uh, in raising a conversation about the issues in, in ways that are a little bit different perhaps, but more importantly, hopefully maybe contribute to the possibility of making our community safer because I returned home to a city here in Chicago that I don't recognize in many ways, and among them is this war against the police, which I feel like in many ways, ironically, is racist. Yes, there's bad cops. I just gave you 2,896 reasons why I know there's some bad cops. The Furby bad cop is a thousand good ones. And where would we be without police officers? And yet the police are, yeah. are being sold out by political leaders of my party. Uh, gangbangers outnumber police officers 75 to 1. The gangs know the police are on the run, so they're going crazy in Chicago. And the biggest victims are black people. 75% of the murders in Chicago are black people. So, you know, I look at that and I think, well, what can I do? My wife Patty's been clear if I ever try to run for office again, I'll do that with my second wife. And you know, <laughs> I'm lucky to fall in love with her and be with her. So I think this documentary film on crime that, that I'm going to do, I think can be a real way to, to serve. And also, you know, if it's successful, um, you know, try to build a better life for my family. Thanks for being on, Governor. Appreciate it. Thank you, Nick. All the best to you. Up next, our reporter roundtable. You're listening to Connected to Chicago on 890 WLS. This is Connected to Chicago. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. And it's time for the Reporter Roundtable, and we welcome in this week Lynn Sweet, Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief at the Chicago Sun-Times, Ray Long of the Chicago Tribune, and political reporter Mary Ann Ahern of NBC5 Chicago. What a week of political news. We'll start with Mike Madigan indicted on federal racketeering charges. Another fall for, from grace for Madigan, who was the most powerful politician uh, for decades in the state. Ray, you literally wrote the book. Start us off. How did Madigan get to this point? Well, uh, first of all, I just want to say this is kind of the mother of all indictments in the political world uh, of uh, Illinois, because uh, Madigan had built this reputation as being meticulous and a person who would go up to the line but not cross it. He had many times said that he avoided conflicts of interest with a, a particular uh, eye on what was uh, where the line was and, and making sure that he uh, stayed on the right side of the line. But this changes the narrative considerably. Uh, this is a 22-count indictment returned Wednesday by a federal grand jury after a long investigation, and it has uh, Madigan allegedly participating in an array of bribery-type schemes and extortion-type schemes from 2011 to 2019. Now, it focuses, it recaps a lot of this ComEd scandal that we've already known about, the bribery-type scandal where he was uh, designated public official lay back in July 2020. And he um, was all, also at that time implicated and commented in its uh, a prosecutorial deferred prosecution agreements uh, actually uh, admitted that they had been showering uh, Madigan allies with contracts and uh, sending uh, 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 
internships to uh, students, college students from the 13th Ward, where his power base is, and even um, uh, sent a, a person on their board, Juan Ochoa, the former McPeer chief, placed on their board at the urging of Madigan through uh, often his uh, longtime friend, a lobbyist named Mike McLean, who was also indicted. And so um, what this does is now uh, put Madigan, uh, put this uh, indictment uh, on Madigan's uh, back and has really, uh, you know, begun the uh, potential uh, major downfall of, a, of the state's longtime most powerful politician. Uh, let me ask this. Uh, anybody can jump in on this one. Are others going to be scooped up in this? Uh, we had Rob Lagojevich on the program. He claims that the, that the Fed should start looking at Governor Pritzker. I mean, are there other tentacles out there? We don't know. Um, I, certainly the Republicans are uh, suggesting that there is more to this, that Pritzker can't distance himself from Madigan quite as easily as he'd like to, since uh, they note that in Pritzker's uh, contributions, which were many to the Democratic Party, included $10 million to uh, the House Democrats and therefore to Mike Madigan, who controlled that money. And so, yeah, that, I mean, however, John Lausch did make a very big point of saying, while they spoke to Pritzker, uh, had questioned him and for more than an hour, it was uh, as a witness and not because there was any suggestion of wrongdoing. Well, I mean, that's the point that I think we ought to underscore here. Belovich uh, could say what he wants about suggesting who to look at, but as Marianne just said, they did talk to Pritzker. So if there is a specific thing that anyone thinks is out there, that would be one thing, but there's not. But the fact that uh, Republicans will use politically the fact that his name came up is something that's different than whether or not there is any merit to saying or implying that Pritzker is somehow involved in this. One of the things this great wealth has done has made him immune from needing to do these kind of deals for fundraising or to keep in power, uh, and it's never been his thing uh, to do the kind of self-serving enterprises, and that's the word in the indictment that the feds allege that Madigan did. Yeah, I think uh, there are several things here. First of all, I, I'd just like to say, you know, that comment from Blagojevich is from a guy who is uh, the only governor who was impeached in Illinois the, uh, and was sent to prison. And he was uh, commuted by a president who was impeached twice. So right. we have to we have to really kind of consider the source of that, too. But uh the other thing about that is that there were a lot of people who were uh, swept up in the Blagojevich uh, case, and uh, a lot of other people did go down in the Blagojevich case. But there were a lot of people, uh, dozens and dozens, who who were investigated for being hired wrong, wrongly in violation of all kinds of veterans' preference and all kinds of things that that uh, never ended up being brought up on charges. And so uh, I'm just 
cautioning that there needs to be perspective uh, on things that uh, Blagojevich says. Marianne, question for you, and then we'll go on to another topic. Um, does this deter other politicians? Is this going to make other politicians think twice? Isn't that always the, the hope? <laughs> but, you know, as we've seen, Nick, it hasn't. I mean, how many do we have to go through the laundry list, you know, starting with Blagojevich and uh, all the way down? It doesn't seem to make a difference. And isn't that, uh, every? you know, even the guy who apparently didn't have a cell phone, who didn't use email, who, you know, uh, did everything in person. Uh, if the feds have them as they appear to think that they have, and, and this, uh, big details in that 102 pages, it still didn't perhaps stop Mike Madigan. That's, that is yeah. just the wow of the week. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, well, this whole thing about deterrence, we, you know, for the people you have on this uh, panel here, we have decades of uh, decades of stories mm -hmm. all done state federal local where everybody thinks they are the ones who could pull this off and not get caught and they do and part of it is is that they are greedy if madigan had just done it a little bit one intern two interns uh, a few a few deals to try to steer business to his firm. Frankly, he, he probably would have gotten away with it. But this is insatiable greed that you see outlined in the 106 pages of the indictment. It just doesn't stop. But here's the thing that also enabled him, and this is a culture change perhaps in Springfield. It's that the Democratic members of the House that made him the speaker, that made up the majority, were too lazy to run their own campaigns and were more than happy to have Mike Madigan run them for him, raise the money. And in return, uh, they kept their mouths shut to whatever they might have seen, might have known or suspected. This laziness is something that isn't illegal, but is to be noticed and deplored. It is a culture change, I think, with Chris Welch. To a degree, he still is raising a ton of money for these campaigns. And uh, I'm not a student of all these campaigns. There is help people are getting. But when I was in Springfield years ago, you know, the nickname for Michael Madigan's members were ducklings. And there's a reason for that, because they just followed the leader. Yeah, I mean, there have been called mushrooms, too, because they were kept in the dark. It's uh, just uh, an interesting time here, because now we have the 19 people who stepped up and said they were not going to support Madigan for another term as speaker a year ago. Uh, now are saying, you know, hey, we tried, we tried to make a difference here, um, and now they're uh, pointing out that, uh, you know, it's time for more change. Lynn, I want to shift gears just a little bit and talk uh, about this rush to replace Bobby Rush and State Senator Jacqueline Collins. I guess is jumping in. This brings us up to how many contenders? So right now there are 17 people who have registered with the Federal Election Commission. We'll know how many actually file petitions at the end of business on March 14th. The window opens to start filing is on Monday. I don't think everybody will necessarily survive because there will be, if anyone has weak petitions, there will probably be challenges. But let's just say I, would, I can't imagine that there won't be at least 10 people who run. And, and right now, it, it, there's a lot of strong contenders. It's stiff competition. My analysis is that the top tier, and this is 
by virtue of either money you could raise or, or the backers they have, Collins gets in the race with the backing of Father Flager and Senate President Don Harmon and state senator uh, and, and, and a variety of state senators. That is, that is a big base. Oh, and former Senate President John Cullerton's doing her fundraising. Jonathan Jackson is campaigning with his father, Jesse Jackson. Bobby Rush has endorsed uh, a, a county city executive, Karen Norrington Reeves. Alderman Pat Dow, who's already been at this for two months, don't discount that a head start may help, uh, has the backing of Carol Mosey Braun. Uh, there are a few others uh, that have the ability perhaps to raise money, even if they don't have name recognition and they could hire professional staff. But uh, there is a top tier now. Community activist Jamal Cole is there, but we'll see what his fundraising is like you know, when the next quarter reports come out. So all this to say, we have until June 28th, and some people will – really be able to put together a coalition to get at least a plurality of the vote, which is all it will take. And here's my question to everyone. I wouldn't be surprised if in the first congressional district primary, if everybody runs a strong campaign in that top tier, the winner could be the nominee by what, 25, 32%? Yeah, or less. I mean, Jackie Collins is well-established too. And she's been there. She's brought home, uh, money for various uh, food organizations, you know, when other people were trying to get a variety of kind of goofy pork barrel uh, uh, projects, she was trying to bring home uh, uh, money from the state to to try to uh, put uh, uh, groceries in the in a, a place where it would be accessible for uh, people in her her uh, district. And she also is right in the heart of where um, Martin Luther King uh, was uh, thrown rocks at, you know, years ago in the 60s, too. And she put up a memorial for that with state funding, too. But the point being that uh, she has been there a long time. And, you know, you kind of hearken back. And Lynn and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago where Bobby Rush had that with you then with you now uh, billboard uh, where he uh, put a picture of himself as a Black Panther and then a picture of himself as Alderman. Now, that's a different kind of context, but Jackie uh, uh, has been there as a senator and has been well established, and she's now got established politicians throwing their backing to her, and that could make a difference. Well, and if you remember any of these other, uh, when it was a wide open, and it doesn't happen often, congressional primary, when Mike Quigley was elected, when Robin Kelly was elected, there was a big field of candidates in those races, and they won with, you know, maybe 12,000 votes at the moment. You know, I mean, that was a huge, uh, it, 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 when so many people are running, uh, you end up just eking through by being smart, being organized, having the people there for you that show up and vote on primary day, which is not always so easy. Might be a little different this time in June, but yeah, this is going to be very interesting in this huge field of Canada. But actually, I think we have three big primaries to watch, and it kind of takes in the sweep of our very diverse city that we live in. We have one of the biggest races 
in a district designed to yield a black member of Congress in the first. We have the new third district, a district designed to elect a Hispanic member of Congress, where the leading contenders now are Alderman Gil Viegas and State Rep. Delilah Ramirez, who I guess this week picked up the endorsement of uh, Representative Jan Schakowsky. And then you have the in the sixth district in in the suburbs, mostly white, an incumbent an incumbent battle in the Democratic primary between Marie Newman and Sean Caston. So these, you know, one, three, six, maybe those are our lotto numbers, but those are the ones to watch. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I know that uh, in in another race of sorts, Arnie Duncan has said he's not going to run uh, for mayor, not going to run against Lori Lightfoot. Marianne Ahern, is this a sigh of relief for Lightfoot? Well, maybe maybe for that half a moment. <laughs> it's been quite a week for her, so uh, I don't think you get to, to have too much of a sigh of relief. You say, okay, who's next? I mean, how do we ignore this lawsuit that was filed this week? Um, a former Park District attorney says that during a Zoom call that he was berated by the mayor that she repeated obscenities at her as he apparently had tried to come up with a solution with the Joint Civic Committee of Italian-Americans, who were quite upset about the removal of the Columbus statues, wanted to bring uh, one of them back to the parade this last October. And once she learned, and again, all of this is still allegations, once she learned of a supposed deal, she uh, allegedly led into him with repeated obscenities. Um, and this is a civil lawsuit. It was a Zoom call. Sure wondering if there's a you know, record of that Zoom call because that would help uh, his case. The mayor today, 24 hours after the lawsuit was, was made uh, public, has issued a statement saying, um, I didn't really say, I never, ever said that, but did say, like, I'll see in court and defended herself. So, you know, this constant drumbeat that the mayor is difficult to work with, that she goes, flies off the handle, that um, people don't want to work in her office, uh, doesn't help. Uh, New polling, Daily Line shows her favorability in a poll that they did. I know it's a snapshot, but her favorability at 15 Ooh, oh, right. It doesn't get it doesn't get much worse than that. So now, you know, that Arnie is a no, uh, there is a scramble going on of okay, if not Arnie, who? And uh keep hearing the names of state rep Cam Buckner, that he's very serious, may announce soon. Um, and then perhaps could there be a congressman Lynn? I mean, could Chewy Garcia or Mike Quigley Take another. Could both of them take a look at this now that Arnie is out? Okay, here's why I don't think it would be Terry Garcia. Right now, half the time I've looked at the FEC registration, he has no Democratic primary opponent. He doesn't even have a Republican opponent. Uh, even if the Republicans win the House, which is likely, he's moving up. And he, he lives locally, politically, he could live on a local stage and a national stage. Uh, he ran for mayor. He didn't do it. He would. Uh, he has his hands in a lot of local races. I just don't see this as what he wants to do now. And quickly has always been interested in this. But his, you know, his head. I talked to him recently, as I'm sure a lot of us have. His head. He's on the intelligence committee. 
he, his head is dealing with things dealing with the Ukraine war, the January 6th uh, issues. I just don't see where would he in theory like to be mayor? Uh, yeah, but I think he's very involved and engaged in what he has. He also does not have a tough re-election campaign, and he can he can continue working on the issues he wants. Uh, the only thing going for him is that a member of Congress would not have to give up a seat to run. It's almost the only job out there because the election is in an odd number year, and members of the House run every two years, and even number of years, you kind of have nothing to lose. So... Uh, so, okay, so in, in theory, there is a reason why they could try it, but I just don't know if either of them have the stomach for it right now. And also, Chewy said in an interview with Fran, he's not interested. So I take him at his word. Well, the word means things can change. We're going to have to leave it there. Lynn, you got the last word in. My thanks to Lynn Sweet, Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief at the Chicago Sun-Times, Ray Long of the Chicago Tribune, and political reporter Mary Ann Ahern of NBC5 here in Chicago. Up next, Lauren Cohn. You're listening to Connected to Chicago on WLS. This is Connected to Chicago, a look at the top stories of the week with the people making, covering, and talking about the news of the day. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. I'm Lauren Cohn for Connected to Chicago, and mass mandates have been dropped in many Chicago indoor settings. That includes restaurants and bars. Sam Toy is president of the Illinois Restaurant Association. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Lauren. Business owners, they must be hoping for big crowds now. Yes, yes, they are. We were very encouraged, and we appreciate that they are announcing this stuff to our sense of normalcy and recovery for our restaurant community. It's been a rough 23 months. Uh, we're hopeful that this is a sign of better times ahead for restaurants, which are still, like I said, really struggling right now. So I know it's on a case-by-case basis, but what do you think most restaurants are going to do when it comes to imposing mass rules or asking for vaccination proof? Lauren, that's a great question. You know, restaurant owners, operators, always the number one concern of, of their team members and guests is the safety and health of them. So they're going to make the decisions that's right for their restaurant. There's definitely going to be some restaurant owners, operators that prefer to keep their own mask, vax policies in place. And we completely encourage them to do that if they feel, you know, if they feel that's the right decision for their restaurant. And if customers want to wear their mask, by all means, wear the mask. Uh, we just wanted the flexibility of having the, you know, mask or not the mask uh, and no mask, mask mandate. And that's where we are today on March 1st. So it's a great sign. And also, as the mayor said and the governor says, they listen to the doctors and scientists, and we're definitely getting to an endemic here. We're out of the pandemic. We're entered the endemic stage. So what does that mean for finding workers? Because I know that's been a challenge throughout the last two years. Will we see more people coming out to go back to work in restaurants? That's what we're hoping for. You know, we lost a lot of team members to other industries during the during the pandemic, like to third-party deliveries, to uh, places like Amazon, to the cannabis industry, um, you know, so like I said, other distribution centers. So we lost a lot of workers. We're hoping they come back. 
uh, to the, you know, restaurant hospitality industry, because it's the one industry you can still enter without a college degree and get to a middle class. You can start out as a busboy, end up being a general manager. You can start out as a dishwasher, end up owning your own restaurant. So it's, it, if you have that type A personality, entrepreneurial uh, personality, it's a great industry to be in. And I know you're gearing up for restaurant week, so tell our listeners a little bit about what we can expect. Well, this is our 15th year of restaurant week. And, we, you know, so restaurants throughout Chicago gather to, uh, you know, to offer special menus, uh, offers to their customers during restaurant week. We're looking very forward to this year. Uh, we think that you're going to get a lot of people participating. The Illinois Restaurant Association uh, participates with the Choose Chicago. Choose Chicago is our um, tourism arm, and they've been doing this for 15 years. So we're looking very forward to that. Uh, you know, there's d- different packages of, you know, for lunch of $25 or dinner goes any from $39 to $55. So I encourage you to go to the Choose Chicago webpage and check out Restaurant Week because if you want to visit some of our great restaurants in Chicago and our 77 neighborhoods, they're all participating. As I say, we are the culinary capital of the United States and Restaurant Week showcases all our great restaurants. And real quick, what's the date that Restaurant Week starts? Chicago Restaurant Week takes place from Friday, March 25th to Sunday, April 10th. Sam Toy, president of the Illinois Restaurant Association. I'm Lauren Cohn for Connected to Chicago. And that'll do it for this week's Connected to Chicago. My thanks to Matt Mellon for his technical assistance. I'm Nick Gale, 890 WLS News. Connected to Chicago, a production of WLS News. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. 